Hi everyone, it's Daniel. Before we get started on this week's A Positive Jam episode, and it's a good one, I want to call out a couple things. First, thank you to those of you who have been listening so far, who have left reviews, and who have tweeted at us or hit us up on Instagram. We're really grateful. Land for Life called this podcast the good stuff kids go for, which is really all we can ask for. If you haven't left us a review, or bugged us on social media, or shared this podcast with a friend, well, we always appreciate more love. Secondly, I'm appearing on an episode of the Bend and Scoop podcast this Friday, talking about music I love and vinyl records as part of the Is That Your Vinyl Answer segment. Check it out. Bob Bland is the host, and he runs a cool podcast with a mix of a bunch of good songs. Okay, enough chat. Let's get into our normal intro and episode, because Hostile Mass is worth it. Hi everyone, this is Mike Taylor, co-host of A Positive Jam. Today, Daniel and I are talking with our friend Leon Nafok. It's a funny song. It's got, it's got funny lines. About Hostile Mass, track 7 on the Hold Steady's 2004 debut album, The Hold Steady Almost Killed Me. Here is why Hostile Mass is important. It is probably the closest we get on this album to hearing the band fully execute their vision. And what I mean by that is Hostile Mass is a perfect blend of lead singer Craig Finn's snarling, punky, hardcore vocals, the band's Thin Lizzy and Led Zeppelin sonic core, and then finally to top it all off, we get this Ernest, Springsteen, and the E Street Band melodrama. And when the Hold Steady gets this mix right, they take their music to another level and they bring the listener along with them. So in this episode, we're going to get into whether the plot of the Hold Steady's universe matters at all, how love emerges from the depths of degeneracy, and how really we should feel about that wild, indulgent saxophone solo. This episode goes a lot of weird places, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, you know, take a listen. Hostile Mass. Leon, this is your favorite song on the album. Why yeah, is that? for sure. You know, these songs all kind of like, I, I, like all, I like all the songs on this album. I think there's one I don't love. I forget which one. Is Bar Fright, Bar Fight Blues on this, song, on this album? It is. We love that song. I think that's one I don't love, but I probably would like it if I heard it now. But I feel like they, 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 each song on this album like comes into focus for me like every on some rotating basis, but this one I always love the same amount. So I think by that measure, it's my favorite song. Why do I like it? I, I think I love the trumpet, if that's what that is. The, the brass, the brass instrument. I suspect it's, it's a trumpet. A saxophone. Guys, I think it's a sax. It's a saxophone. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I like the saxophone. I'm sure we'll talk about the saxophone more. It's, uh, I feel like it combines like the kind of earnestness that I associate with their like later work and a kind of like joyfulness that I associate with their later work, but it doesn't have any of like the cloying aspects of what I also associate with their later work. Like, I think it's like the right combination of joyful and earnest and a little mean and a little angry and a little fatalistic. And I feel like the ratio of those properties is something they had down perfect for a while. And then they like tipped into the other direction. And that's when they lost me. But I feel like the song is the perfect ratio. Yeah, I agree with that in large part. I'm a little bit out on the sax solo, as we'll talk about later. But it is the weirdest thing to me about this song is how the sax solo is obviously very major, happy and peppy. And the lines that lead into it are about a disappearance of this couple and how they leave mass and then faded into the fog and love of, of love and faithless fear, which is obviously quite bad and distressing. <laughs> and I just think it's like, it's weird that this whole song is this catalog of sort of degenerate behavior and things collapsing around everyone, but it ends on like a very pot. It feels very hopeful and positive at the end, which is something that really none of the other songs on this album, I think achieved to this degree. 
but it's weird and a little confusing if you sort of take the lyrics seriously and then the trajectory of the song and the way it sounds in terms of getting hopeful at the end. I don't really... You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me a lot, and maybe this is just because I listened to it like the other day, but it reminds me of the breasts in The Decline, the NoFX EP. I, I can't... Da, I gonna... da, da, da. Yeah. Decline. There's like something a little bit sinister, more sinister, like more overtly sinister to the decline solo, if that's what you call it. But they're both like contrasts to the rest of the song, you know? Yeah. Daniel, what do you think of the song in general? The, I love the song. It was always one of the ones that stood out for me at the beginning. And then I do want to come back to, I think, Leon, you kind of set it up nicely, the idea of them getting the balance right and what this meant for the future of the hold steady but being from massachusetts i got a kick out of mass being sort of the center of the song but then it's just got some of his best lines in here too in terms of hardcore and finally the clever kids kind of really brought up to the front i mean they've come up in other songs but it's just like i don't know it's funny it's a funny song it's got it's got funny lines we've all been at those parties right (laughs) somebody's like i i'm Corey, I, I, I mean, I've been, I've probably been that person at parties. So. Wait, what do you mean by that, though? <laughs> like, what, what type of party, what kind of party is, is that? that? Yeah. And what type of person is that? Awkward people posing, people trying to. This came out when I was in college, and people trying to feel each other out and put stances on who they are, and trying to come up with what's their shtick, what's their thing, and so for Corey. He wants it to be that he's hardcore and people call him hardcore, but other people call him Porky Pig. So <laughs> it's kind of tough. That is tough. Yeah, I guess maybe like, I feel like I've, I've heard people say things like, are you into the Velvet Underground at parties when I was younger, you know, or something like that? Like, are you into, are you into this band and like trying to, yeah, feel out ideas of taste and like who you are as a person? Yeah, I, I also get a kick out of like the Massachusetts references in a way that I almost feel like I'm a sucker for it, right? Because they've even said this in interviews, they just like thread their songs with references to places that they've never even necessarily been. Or in this case, a place that doesn't even exist. Hostile Massachusetts, I don't think it's a real place. But it's like a way to tickle people from all over the country. But I don't care. It works. <laughs> it works for me. Hostile. So that's like, it's a pun of like a hostile mass of people. And it's also... Oh, yeah. Okay. Didn't pick that up for the past 12 years. And a mass is a church service. I know, you don't think about it. Oh, that's two puns. Yeah, and it sounds like, sounds like Boston, I think, is the other. So I just like sort of mentally substitute Boston in for hostile as like a sort of like a clever, we're going, when you kind of like come up with something that rhymes with the actual thing as a way of saying like, we're going to hostile or we're going to hostile Massachusetts. It's clever in that way, and there's a lot of sort of peak cleverness here. I love the lines about the colors matching other colors. The color of our teeth matches the color of our tongues. So gross and evocative, but also is sort of a talking around way. And I also love the Massachusetts references. I'm reading Infinite Jest right now, and I'm at this part right now where he's taking you on this mental catalog tour of all Boston and its environs and swinging you through sort of the academics and the really rich and powerful aspects of the city, but also down like through Skid Row, which is actually really sort of proximate to all the stuff. And I have an uncle who lives in Boston and he's driven me around and he grew up in sort of a tougher neighborhood. And he showed me, we just drove by like one of these halfway houses for whatever reason, Boston and Massachusetts, I think also like movies like The Departed and The Town and stuff kind of reinforce this idea that it's like this really well-to-do place, but there's also like a top underbelly city in the United States. And so for me, Massachusetts kind of has that. It's got these really 
clever kids, perfect because of like Harvard and whatever. But also there's a lot of sort of scummy stuff about Boston. I feel like you grew up there. So you it's I think it's not only that Boston's also full of posers. I mean, if you think about the whole popular culture of Boston, especially this still 2004, the Sox have not won the World Series yet. The Patriots are kind of a weird team. So like the whole sports mentality is we're long suffering and we're the we're the toughest sufferers. It's a town that prides itself on being the toughest. On it's a tough guy town. Yeah, it's such a tough. It's a big boy pants town. It's a big boy pants town. Everybody thinks that they are the hardest suffering. Everybody thinks that they are the real. It's an inferiority complex that's just New York shouldn't be as good as Boston. I mean, I didn't like New York until I was almost out of college because you grew up in Boston. You think, oh. Who needs New York? And so it's just, it really fits that posing. And then you, yeah, you have like these random, Lynn, Massachusetts is a really interesting town to be used here because I actually don't think, I think that's more of the reputation of the underbelly than the posing. But you've got just random, the North Shore, the South Shore. Like I picture this, I picture South Shore kids here as just like sort of fake tough, you know, some working class, you know, like tougher folk, but it's still kind of, Come on, you're still in the Boston area. You're still pretty well off. So I, I think it's uh and Craig Finn, his parents are from Boston. I was listening to an interview with him on the Working Songwriters podcast. His parents were from Boston and moved out to Minneapolis to to the suburbs to work. He said that he got the sense from them that the real action was out east, and then he went to BC, which is in Newton, Chestnut Hill, sort of just on the fringe of Boston. I feel like. There are some name references that he drops that he doesn't, like, he is just dropping them to drop them. When I Googled Lynn, Massachusetts, it, the, one of the first results is a common question, which is why is Lynn called the city of sin? And so I guess it has sort of a tough guy reputation. What is this back bay? What's the back bay mean to you, Daniel? Or maybe even Leon, you lived in Boston for a while. Daniel, you go first. I, I I have a vague sense of these things, but Back Bay to me, like, correct me if I'm wrong, pretty Tony. Yeah, well, so it's an important. So first of all, I never lived in the city. I was a suburbs kid, so it's like also a lot of learning for me. But the Back Bay is Tony. It's like the right, if you think of in between Storrow Drive, which is the main road along the Charles River, and commonwealth or newberry it's like all these really nice brownstone brick houses the back bay itself is pretty nice the back bay fens are a neighborhood sort of a little bit further southeast of that past fenway park fenway park is not actually at the fenway t-stop it's at kenmore square and then the fenway is kind of behind it and it's this in theory a swampy area I, the only other thing, so I, the Back Bay Fence, that's where you get a connection to Mickey Mantle, a Yankee, which is, but then the only other thing I would have thought about it is somebody who I don't think Craig Finn himself has referenced a lot, but Jonathan Richmond has got a song, Twilight in Boston, where he's wandering around the Back Bay Fence. Taking a left. Going by the Fenway, by the Marshland Park. The little memorial by the Victory Gardens. One of my favorite parts of town. Those little plots of land. But according to Genius.com, which we've cited quite a bit, Back Bay Fens is a gay hookup area, which is what the (laughs) back up against the fence getting gentle. It's evocative in that way, I guess. Yeah. Welcome to the Map Corner for Hostile Massachusetts. We've already covered quite a bit here, but I wanted to zero in on Lynn, Massachusetts, because it's a fascinating choice that Craig made to include it, and I have some history here. Lynn is on the North Shore of Massachusetts, on the Atlantic and about 10 miles from Boston. North Shore is where Gloucester is, for example, scene of Perfect Storm, the movie. You can also think of Salem, Massachusetts, home of the Witch Trials, which is in between Lynn and Gloucester. It's a city... One of the former mill towns in the north part of Massachusetts, like Lowell or Lawrence. Lynn specifically was a big home of the shoe industry in North America. 
and also home to one of the companies that merged to form General Electric in the late 19th century. It's still the home of the company that makes Marshmallow Fluff, creator of Fluffernutter. I think Lynn is an interesting choice here, because Craig appears to say that he looks deep into the eyes of Corey, Hard Corey. Hard Corey wouldn't be from Lynn, in my view. He'd be from a nearby town like Swampscott or Marblehead. Nicer towns where the kids might still get mixed up in weird things, but not really working class towns. My uncle lives in Marblehead, another lives in Swampscott, and I drive through Lynn each time I go to see them. Lynn has long been a town of immigrants, and has been increasingly Latino over the past few decades. It's known as a working class, tough city, all in all, that's been the reputation for years. As Mike referenced, the famous thing about Lynn is the old rhyme. Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin. You won't come out the way you went in. Lynn suffered from some of the industrial decay that we more commonly think of with the Midwest and the Rust Belt. The shoe industry hollowed out and actually burned down to a large degree in November 1981 due to a big fire right around Thanksgiving. I have a further personal connection to Lynn because when my parents and older brother arrived in the States in May 1981 from the Soviet Union, they moved to immigrant housing in Lynn. Our family's story in the States started there. Beyond my brother repeating that rhyme to me every time I mention Lynn, I also think of the story of my dad buying a tractor engine and leaving it in the bathtub of his apartment, bringing my mother to tears when she came home. Fun times in Lynn, Massachusetts. After I first recorded this, I asked my dad about the Great Fire, and it turns out the apartment building they lived in was across the street from the shoe factories that burned down, close enough that burning embers fell down from the sky onto their building's rooftop. My dad and some, quote, other crazy Russians stood on the rooftop, grabbing the embers and throwing them down to the street so their building wouldn't catch fire. I want to wrap this by coming back to why Lynn may have been a good pick specifically, even if Hard Corey doesn't seem like he'd come from there. Lynn is known as the City of Sin, and you can imagine city government wouldn't like that. So they rebranded as the City of Firsts, claiming such firsts as the first tannery to be operated in the United States in 1629, the first woman inducted into the Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1847, Maria Mitchell, an astronomer, also the place where Frederick Douglass moved after escaping slavery and wrote his first autobiography around the same time, the first jet airplane engine in the U.S., built at General Electric's plant, and most interestingly of all, and I couldn't find support for this from the Wikipedia page, the first roast beef sandwich. We talked on Knuckles about how hard it is to claim your own nickname. So you could say that Ling keeps trying to get people to call it the City of Firsts, but people keep calling it the City of Sin, which fits in here. And besides, it's harder to squeeze in Methuen, Massachusetts, than it is Lynn into the cadence of the song. Okay, that's it for Map Corner. Let's get back to our discussion with Leon and Mike. It's funny, I, I was going to say like, I also read the lyrics on Genius in preparation for this. And I mean, I kind of knew that a lot of the whole study songs up to and including their most recent work is like all taking place in one universe and that there's like characters that come back and in and out and there's plots that are unfurled non-consecutively. The timeline is all scrambled. But it, reading the reading the Genius annotations, and there weren't that many of them for this song, but like that, that get into this like whole study universe mythology. But like even the few that were in there, like about like Sapphire, who it's hard to know whether like when he's like talking about a, a female woman, like about a woman, he whether he's talking about Holly or or Sapphire. I'm like who the fuck is Sapphire? Yeah, I don't know that either. <laughs> and then like he like on the on the line, he had a detox stream. There's like a link that says like this was elaborated on like in another song, and I've never even heard that song. And it made me just wish that I was like a little younger or like a lot younger at the time of, I guess now, like at the time of Jose's most recent work, because I think I just know I would have gotten fully obsessed with the with the like the extended whole study universe like on star wars on it basically well my reference point is is not star wars but rather the smashing pumpkins machina album which came out when i was a senior in high school maybe a junior and i like got into i got obsessed with the pumpkins like really late in the game like machina was not the album you're supposed to get into the pumpkins on but i did Machina was like there's like an entire like online mystery that fans were solving on message boards about like 
who was Glass and who was, <laughs> I don't fucking remember, June, you know, and like, they were looking for clues and all these songs. I was so into it. Wow. And I would have gone to town on the whole study if I still had the, the, the energy and I don't know what it, what it is, youthful uh, adventurousness that I had back then. I'm just like, that's interesting because our friend Matt Brooks, he actually sent us a link to someone who's created a chronological rundown of all the events in the Hold Steady universe. And it's on a message. I forget if it's on Reddit or what. It's probably everywhere. But what happened to me when I clicked that is like, I don't really, I'm not really interested in the plotting <laughs> of this story. At, like, I'm just, I, it's not important. Just like just overdose, like, robbery, overdose, like breakup, like. Yeah, I, I, yeah, <laughs> right. Is there really any meaningful arc to it? But it still like tickles something in me. It's, it's the same thing that I love about like, have you read uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find, the Sherwood Anderson novel and stories? It's like any, any novel and stories where it's like a bunch of like vignettes that like take place in the same universe and they like connect up with each other. Like you meet like the uncle in one story and then like the uncle is like the main character in another story. I don't know. I just like yeah. just structurally that really appeals to me about that and always has. It makes it feel more important. Like there's some sort of yes. common, I mean, it's the same. We were talking earlier about all their pop culture references, which is sort of similar in the sense of tying you into something more than just these four chords and guitar solos or whatever. I think they're very good at that. Like what Leon was saying, it makes you want to dive in. You know that there's more to know than what is immediately in front of you for both like the plotting of things and also just that there's this world that you can't quite access is very yeah. much, very much like a, and a difficult, I don't even know how you set about trying to achieve that. If you're writing something, I don't think I've ever written with that goal, particularly in mind or thought consciously about how to do it. I, it's only something really that I notice in other people's work, I think. And so in that way, it's, I think, pretty impressive to me. A Positive Jam is brought to you by Retro Gear Shop. Retro Gear Shop offers a unique selection of high-end musical instruments, recording equipment, and audio gear, and is sold to everyone from Pete Townsend to Arcade Fire to Wilco and more. Check out Retro Gear Shop at RetroGearShop.com and see why it's the premier high-end musical gear shop. Retro Gear Two things also just specifically about this song and how it fits in are that, and Leon, when we talked about the swish, Mike pointed out that he did not like the ending to the swish. I Wait, I, just real quick. I, I put forward the theory that it was bad ending. I don't want to say <laughs> fully that I, that I, and I think you guys talked me out of it, but I did, I did make the case that it was bad. When I listened to this song, I always heard this, this basically was the end of the album for me. And then you had two random songs. And then you had Killer Parties, and Killer Parties was like the the last scene song, and so that was fine. And I just wonder what if I still think about that a lot. I you know we'll talk about the other songs, and I in some cases really like some of the other songs on here, but I feel like a this feels like it's a closing. We have the damn good dancer who we remember in Barfruit Blues that thought she was a good dancer, but her steps made the record skip. She learned to and dance. Then, this is a song about personal growth. <laughs> this guy finds his pants by the end of the song. This girl's a good dancer by the end of the, Like a lot is happening. <laughs> it's a turning. I don't care about plotting, but I do care about character development. We get a big, in, it's a big inflection point for a lot of people. And this, if you put the swish, if you just cut the swish's ending off and put the ending of Hostile Mass, it goes together. And so it's probably in the same key and pretty much the same rhythm. And you have things like in the swish, there's moving pictures got us through to September. And here we have only went to the movies for the AC. Like it just feels like they can just directly connect is what you're saying. They can. And the, and the, the sax solo and just that upbeat note that you guys pointed out earlier. Again, I think it's problematic for what happens to the hold steady in the future. But right here, it's, I just think it just leaves you like. Hooray! We've we've completed our journey. You you're you beat the level or whatever. I don't know. It's just a really we level. left church into this despondent <laughs> horror scene, and our whole whole situation is collapsing around. Yeah, she was a damn good dancer. 
Well, that's like growing, right? That's what, maybe that goes back to what Leon said at the beginning, which is this recipe has all the ingredients in the right proportion. There is the, the sort of depths of despair and degeneracy and partying without pants and bumming around going to movies and your friends are turning on you. The reason that it works, maybe, that you end up in this like very positive instrumentation at the end, despite everything that comes before, is because it's love. They two, the, this is a song about two people falling in love. And so it's sort of everything else becomes irrelevant in the fact that they are sort of leaving together and they have each other. Can I ask you a question about that? You said it's about two people falling in love, but like, which two people? Is it the, is he, is he singing about the two people or is he one of the two people? Is he singing about a woman or a girl he's in love with, but she, she's in love with someone else? I feel like there's this like, I'll tip my hand a little bit as to why I find this interesting is that there's always like a little bit of most, I feel like most of the whole study songs are in the third person. And then there's like occasional flashes of a first person that I never know what to make of, whether it's like, he's like a distant narrator who's involved in this scene, or if he's a sort of omniscient narrator, it's just kind of unclear to me. I mean, obviously if he's saying I, and he's like putting himself in the story, he's not just a disembodied narrator, but I just, it's always tricky for me to try to figure out what his perspective is. Like my favorite line in this song is, and the two of you went up to his room and later on you wouldn't admit you did. Why? Because it just, it implies so much that he noticed, you know, that he's like watching them and like maybe they're at a party and he was hoping she was going to go home with him or whatever. And it just implies a lot. It implies a lot about his, how he sees her and how he feels about her. And it implies a lot about their history. I don't know. Maybe I also been just like projecting because I just remember like being in high school and like being just like achy with heartbreak over like the fact that some, you know, a girl that I like had a crush on chose someone else, you know, mythologizing that in this way is like pushes a button in me. But it, yeah, like in those moments when there's an I or an implied I, just like suddenly like you're like, wait, what's this yeah. guy's relationship to this story? Yeah, good point. And well, genius is really funny about that too, because they make note of it a lot through, through the things. And also that post that's on Reddit or whatever that does the chronology, like catalogs all of the speaker, I guess we'll just call it, it's Craig Finn. We'll say that it's Craig Finn. Catalogs all his behavior through the thing too. I think it is weird, the insertion, when he inserts himself into the songs, it does kind of add a weird third dimension. It's interesting you say that because it almost makes it feel like the narrator is a frustrated narrator here. Yeah, totally. Once you read into it, they're frustrated because the clever people, look at all these clever people, but then she didn't go in my room and that's how I know you're over, you're lying. And there's sort of, yeah. it, it does cast a different perspective on that you don't think about with them because you don't think about him as a character, really. I didn't think of him as a character in that particular reference. I thought it was just a joke, like a funny that like she went upstairs with a guy who had no pants on and then just wouldn't admit that she did it later because that's such like an embarrassing thing <laughs> that she hooked up with the guy whose dick was out. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so to wait, but I do want to defend my case that these it's about two people falling in love. Yeah, so, yeah, please. Okay, so the structure of the song is it like very specifically pans back or like cuts intercuts between him and her and describing him, then describing her, then describing him, then describing her, which to me just, just like you're meant to sort of watch these two people from opposite sides of the room and they get closer and closer to each other as the song progresses. She decided that she loved him. I think is a pretty clear evidence <laughs> that they are falling in love. And they meet at a party and then they hook up, but wouldn't admit it. And then the he is Charlemagne, by the way. It seems that way, right? I, I wonder how much it mattered to Craig Finn, whether it was the same consistent, whether it's actually, maybe it's not even relevant that it be the same person throughout in each of the episodes that are taking place. But by the end, it's two people leaving this place together and going out into the wide unknown. And I think that's another reason why it, it's a song about people falling in love. Maybe I'm bringing my own thing into this in the way that Leon acknowledged what's possible. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Right. So it just really connects with me, this idea of being lost and messed up in this partying 
scene when you're single, but you're still like sort of profoundly alone, despite the fact that you're constantly going out and doing a lot of stuff with a lot of different people and meeting a lot of different people. And there is kind of when you meet someone that you actually care about, it creates like a meaningful shift in the way that you approach the world, or at least it did for me. And the priorities just kind of realign all of a sudden. And that's the kind of inflection point that I think you hit towards the end of the song and why it can go from a kind of downbeat catalog of all this self-destructive behavior into this like soaring positive at the end is because I think that love is the sort of fulcrum that facilitates that transition. That all sounds persuasive to me. I also think there's like, there's a, there's a couple of lines towards the end that make me think that this self, you know, self-destructive chaotic scene is kind of like coming apart while they're riding off into the sunset together. There's like the kids are on the corner cracking, caving in, turning over and turning other kids in. It conjures for me the, the park that used to be like the spot in our hometown where not me and Mike's hometown, but my hometown where kids would go to do drugs basically after school. It was like right in the middle of town and it started out pretty gentle, pretty, you know, people playing hacky sack and frisbee and smoking weed and then gradually became darker and darker. The drugs got harder. And I always think about Scoville. It was called Scoville Park. I never went. It was like friends of mine who I was friends in, with in middle school started going there when we got to high school and I kind of split off. And it, was, it was like pretty judgmental of them for going down that path in a way I regret now, obviously. But I always think about Scoville Park whenever I, it's like my main reference point for like a teeming mass of fragile burnouts, you know, who are like, are a little bit abandoned, a little bit self-destructive, you know, taking some pleasure and solace in each other's like company um, while everything gets worse. And then like, and then there's always like a sense of a school park that there's like a cycle to it every seven years or I don't know, five years it would like reset because the kids would graduate and then maybe the drugs would get not hard again until they did or until they got hard again. Anyway, uh, it just, I don't know. That just makes me think that while these two are making their escape, the party's ending. Do you think that that's particular to the Midwest, that kind of scene, Leon? Because I tried to, in another conversation with Daniels, make this case that growing up in the Midwest, there's kind of this scenes like that park where sort of drug use and then things get sort of somehow for some people just kind of spiral out of control. Does that have any? The reason I ask is because Midwesternness is a theme of Craig's music, the Hold Steady's music and a sort of anchor for a lot of what goes on. And it resonates with me as someone who grew up in the Midwest, this kind of like nice drugs and then a sort of, for some people, a kind of like quick descent into real trouble. So I wanted to, you wrote that piece about Scoville Park, so maybe you have some perspective on whether it's geographically a feature of the Midwest of like Chicago or Milwaukee or Minneapolis. Well, it's funny you say that because I actually think like listening to the whole city made me think it's not, that it's like universal in some way because he just describes these scenes all over the country. And again, maybe they're just all fictional, but, or, you know, actually also listening to like, um, there's a couple of Mountain Goats albums that are very much in this key thematically, like We Shall All Be Healed and Tallahassee. I hope it stays dark forever. I hope the worst isn't over. And I hope you blink before I it's a little different. I think they're, those albums are like a little, people are, are a little older and maybe they're into meth rather than anything else, but maybe, that, and that's, maybe it's drug specific. I mean, I grew up in a relatively middle class, like not a Tony suburb, but not a Burlington Mass is sort of right in the middle, I would say. Like we had Billerica, which was a tougher town right next to us. But then we also had Lexington, which was a totally Tony town right next to us. So, and my, we had kids from that high school who got into drugs and OD'd and died. And we had kids who, like, I think a kid I used to play baseball with probably broke into my dad's house at some point and stole a laptop when I was in college. So, yeah, it's more universal. I don't know why I'm chauvinistic like that, but I just have some sort of like that there's something in the air in the Midwest. Maybe I just want to feel that way because it helps me feel special. No, but I do think like climate and shit like that affects like how teens teenagers hang out, you know, like, yeah, you can just imagine like 
how it changes fashion and how it changes like whether you're in people's houses or whether you're outside, whether you're like always looking for somewhere to like whether you're driving around as opposed to like, I don't know, I feel like climate matters. I feel like people in California can just hang out at the beach. Yeah, just a different thing. But I kind of suspect in the same way that like I'm always marveling when I see teenage burnouts in the street. I'm like, why are you guys still wearing the same fucking clothes that I thought were cool in 1997? Like yeah. wearing the same baggy pants, the same hoodies, the same band t-shirts. I'm like, how is this so immutable, this like aesthetic? And there's just a path. Where are you, you getting just, it? Like, who are you, you just, who are you copycatting? It's like that starter pack internet meme joke thing. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, literally there's a uniform you can put on. You can just start doing it. There's an entire playbook ready for you if you're starting to. F- yeah. And I feel like insofar as that's like the caricature, like the whole study can like, I perceive their songs to be like a textured, almost like comic book rendering of that lifestyle, that aesthetic, that sort of set of emotions. Well, what's funny, I mean, I just took it so much more seriously when I was younger and like found it to be aspirational and cool. And it's funny to me. Yeah. The whole studies treatment of this in particular. And I just, I'm finding through more and more conversations with Daniel and Matt Brooks and other people that, they didn't really take it that way. They did have it, see it as a more heightened for effect thing. And I was like, this is a life you can live. And I like want it. I want that for myself, <laughs> <laughs> which is like probably caused me not a ton of problems, but probably more problems than I would have had if I understood that way of reading this music. It's like any, anytime you hear about like rappers are glamorizing like guns, like we're not glamorizing, we're just describing it. And if you listen closely, you would know that we're lacing it with all the appropriate pain and regret. It's not always true about rappers, but I feel like here, and actually there's a line in the song where he says, thinking things are funny when they really ain't that funny, which makes me wonder, like, again, about the narrator of the songs, like, is he narrating these stories from the perspective of like the older, wizened survivor who like can look back from like the same perspective that you're looking back on it from being like, huh, I was pretty dumb to think this was cool. Well, it's because they were 33 when they started the band, right? Which just, you have to have a different, I mean. <laughs> it's old enough. It's old enough. Yeah. I don't know. From what I hear that they continue to, it's clear that they like to party and have fun and live a rock and roll lifestyle as they were starting out. Because you would see them like pounding beers on stage and like. Drinking, drinking like entire bottles of whiskey. Like, yeah. Yeah. So they didn't have a completely ironic detachment from the subject matter but i'm sure even still i think craig had a girlfriend at least you know like something <laughs> something was like something was probably pulling them back and introducing some level of perspective and i mean the song is evidence of that there's an interview where he where he talks about i think he, he's just one of many rock stars this happens to but like because he sings so much about drugs kids would come up to him at shows after after shows and be like yo you want to do oxy with us you know, what the f- like are you fucking listening like <laughs> no <laughs> well it's also funny it's i was puzzled going back through some of the early interviews where journalists were kind of fairly consistently asking him how much was autobiographical and how much reflected his own experiences and he was at fairly great pains to disavow a lot of the behavior and to deny that he did it and i didn't know when i first read that whether that was just like him distancing himself so that he wouldn't be viewed as glamorizing it or if he distanced himself on purpose that way to avoid a sort of rapper like situation where someone from high school comes out and says Craig was a nerd man he like he read poetry he never did oxy or even drink in high school or whatever people might say to like undermine his credibility I never understood what needle he was trying to thread there but it may very well be that he thinks that this is interesting stuff to look at and talk about and sing yeah. about, but it's not an endorsement. It's not even necessarily something that he's personally lived because he's denied personally living. So, I mean, so many of his songs are about this shit, even like yeah. the lifter puller. <laughs> yeah. It's a fascination at the very least. That brings me back to this idea of like the redemption arc that's clearly so thematically important to the hold steady in general and especially where they went later where it's like so much emphasis is on positive ain't, ain't life grand yeah i guess the what 
this song is successful because it takes you through the negative and then leaves you, it earns the positivity at the end. Whereas, as Leon said, for me as well, if that positivity and that redemption doesn't feel earned through some sort of trip that you went through, that you didn't go through something to get there, then it doesn't feel exactly the same. If you're heavy into the hold study and like nerding out about song structure, maybe you also like cool, unique pieces of musical gear and equipment. If so, you should know that A Positive Jam is brought to you by Retro Gear Shop. Want to get the latest updates and news on vintage gear editions and new top-end gear for your studio? Email list at retrogearshop.com with the subject line Positive Jam and get added to the Retro Gear Shop newsletter as well as 10% off your next purchase. Just email list at retrogearshop.com or go to retrogearshop.com slash pages slash contact and fill out the form with positive jam in the message and get 10% off your next high-end musical gear purchase from Retro Gear Shop. Retro Gear Well, and you can look at the music, which is where it starts with these sort of bass note half step or step drops is sort of the backing. A knockoff necktie, the way he wore it made it look more like a tourniquet. I look deep in his eyes. I saw and then they get into these, each time they get into the chorus or the refrain, they get into this really ripping guitar, but... Then that, that's where that sax solo, I mean, it, it's just like a corny sax solo. It's a good one, but it's really like right out of Clarence Clemens' playbook. And it's, we talked about earlier the Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen spectrum versus the then Lizzie ACDC or whatever, Zeppelin spectrum. And it's where they just go hard to the Bruce and Billy side. And that's where... I think it works in this song, but I remember I had a friend, I was writing for a music site and one of the guys there who was from Minneapolis and so was into lifter puller before. And that's how he turned me on to this. He's just like, yeah, this is, this is not good news. Like this is, this is bodes ill for what's to come, something like that. And I feel like that's where, that's the question mark out of this song is like, he called it. Yeah. What a call. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, because then they, you know, Separation Sunday, I feel like they still sort of threaded it. And then after that, it, it got pretty, pretty, I mean, you know. Sac- saccharin, yeah. On Boys and Girls in America, I feel like there's a real, like, funhouse mirror image of this song in Chill Out Tent, which is a relatively unsuccessful song, at least for me, in that, like, it's the same basic story of, like, two people meeting and having a sort of illicit hookup amid chaos. But yeah, for whatever reason that it dwells on the wrong aspects of the story. I remember hearing that song for the first time, like when we, we, you and I saw them at the Warsaw. Yeah. And they didn't have, it was Craig singing the lyric, singing the, the hook uh-huh. instead of the, the, I don't know who the female singer is, but I hate how they recorded her. I hate how she sounds on that song. So it ruins it for me. I'm 100%. I mean, that's not good. And it's not good, but it's such a brutal song. Yeah. <laughs> But here they nail it, I think. Yeah, totally. And I, and I also think like I would add a third dimension to like what you were saying, Daniel. Like it's, there's like the ACDC pole and then there's like or, like the ACDC access and then there's the Springsteen access. I would add like hardcore, I guess, or just punk oh. where it's like not melodic. It's not. It's like it's it's abrasive. It's it's hostile, which I don't associate with ACDC that much. I associate ACDC with like maybe it's like maybe it's like. Oh, they're catchy. No, 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 I know. I'm, I'm saying like, it's not, I'm, I'm sure they're aggressive, but they're not like snarling maybe the way that I, I think of like lifter polar being. And the fact that the, that the verses here are pretty not melodic and pretty like, just like barked rather than sung gives it this edge that I miss about them. Yeah. Craig just, Craig just sounds, he just sounds unsatisfied or dissatisfied in a way that like went away. And uh, that's what I miss, I think. Yeah. And when you get, they have a, I think it's a B-side or unreleased track off one of their more recent, it might've been Stay Positive, a bonus track or something, Ask Her For Adderall, which is like a three chord punk song. And when I hear those songs, I like am pulled in 
And it's such an important part of Craig Finn's musical history that he was really into hardcore shows and he references hardcore a lot. But you're right, it's usually lurking in the background or it's mostly just in the vocal delivery, but it's hard to find it elsewhere in the catalog. But when it's in the mix, it does, a third axis creates a third dimension. I think that the most three-dimensional songs probably do have all three of those in there. I feel like I hear those three on all th- on all the, on most of the songs of the first two albums, and like a couple on the third album, and then never again, pretty much. <laughs> and then we're just seven, yeah, seventies throwback without the punk, <laughs> right? Exactly. That hurts. One thing that's somewhat related to this: the first couple lines where he's like, "She hung a sleeveless dress up on a sleeved up lifestyle girl. You got to cover that." She hung a sleeveless dress up on a sleeved up lifestyle. Hey girl, you gotta cover that. She saw him gushing blood from wide open wounds. I guess sleeved up lifestyle means like you have track marks because you're doing heroin. And girl, you gotta cover that is like someone saying to her, or maybe it's the narrator saying to her, come on, like if you wanna if you wanna live live this lifestyle, you gotta walk the walk and take precautions. There's like a savviness to it. That like I feel like Craig Finn disapproves of. He doesn't the savvy like is, is a savviness that it's like a mean and maybe like nihilistic savviness that he embodies like in a lot of songs. I think in, in little flashes. I don't think you're supposed to think of it as glamorous. I don't think you're supposed to like be like, oh, that guy's cool. He knows how to do heroin. You know. <laughs> I didn't. I had the. I mean, I didn't pick up on that unfortunately <laughs> when I first heard this band. I was like, he knows what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Cover it up. <laughs> But I get that. I, I like get and, and respect the, he's like rendering that savviness in a way that like accentuates how, how low you have to go and how dark it has to get for you to acquire it. Yeah. It's like, you don't want to be fucking savvy about how to cover up your track marks. Yeah. We talked about this in Knuckles. I had this sort of same, you don't want to know or be around real tough guys because they're like psychos who will hurt somebody. And there's like a, there is a limit to how much of acting like an outlaw or doing drugs or all this stuff is is actually cool and fun. And I think that you're hitting on a sort of similar note there. But when I first moved to Tacoma, Washington, a friend of a friend of mine was a, a weed dealer and he he got held up and they took all his weed and they took all his money. And his response was, he bought a gun. And I just like stopped hanging out with him after that. Cause it was like if you're like a trust fund kid who's selling weed and you like, if your response is like that, you're going to kill somebody the next time this happens to you, then like, I'm, <laughs> I'm out. I mean, yeah, I'm going to drink some beers at the bar, you know, like, but I think the reason I'm hammering on this after you brought it up is because I think it's sort of the whole ball game for like this music's position and what he's trying to achieve by telling these stories or what he's trying to explore. This is like one of the major fulcrums for everything is like where are the limits of these depths and what should people be doing and like when does utopia turn into it's interesting to also think about lifter puller because lifter puller dealt with all this stuff obviously and their last album ends with the nightclub blowing up and nightclub dwight is in serious trouble i can't remember if he gets killed or not but there's real consequence and it's real gritty and it's much more snarled both the narration and the music is much more tangled and the hold steady is you could sort of see it as craig said i want to make things simpler these old classic rock licks sound great but it's also like translating all this stuff that he was conveying in the lifter puller's work into a more accessible way and there's that again that redemption arc and you look at the end of the song and it's it's basically setting up that this party was mass. It was this as similar to a religious service. And then they wandered out of it. And even though things were faithless fear, like it's still facing up to it. It's just an interesting sort of arc that they trace through that. And that's their stories that they've now translated what they do more excessively. And then, as we said, it kind of, they push too far and they lose some of the grit that makes that satisfactory for us anyways but i, I don't For know cool guys like us yeah, <laughs> yeah. clever oh, kids dude. in this room going to the show and looking around at the type of people who are going to hold steady shows these days was like a another little unflattering mirror you know <laughs> it's like i'm the same 
but I think that's where you want to be redeemed, but to get there, you have to like sin a little first. And I think that the songs that thread that needle are really what it's all about for me. And I think that's what you hit here. Final note, the guitar solo is great. So good. That's all. I just like great work on the guitar there. I love the guitar solo. You guys saw them back in the day too. I like, they didn't have a sax on stage when they played the song. I think they just guitar solo. Yeah, they didn't have, did they have one? Oh yeah, they did have one when we saw them a couple months ago, right Mike? Yeah, the horn steady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very positive uh, name. They really achieved positivity there. Yeah, I don't know. I actually don't honestly have a clear memory of them playing this song live. I don't either. I don't either, but I think I w- think I would have remembered if they didn't play it or if they played it like with a sax. So I feel like it stayed with me as they did not have a sax when they played. It wouldn't surprise me if Tad just wailed at the end. Yeah. I don't it would be we should look it up. All right. Thank you to Leon Nafok. Thanks a lot, bro. You can support Leon by checking out his podcast about disasters in U.S. history. That's Fiasco, and it's only available on the Luminary platform. His studio also produces the more widely available 5 to 4 podcast, which is a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks, and it's one of my favorite podcasts, so please check that out. You can also follow Leon on Twitter, at Leon Crawl. Thanks, of course, as always, to The Hold Steady. Listen, as a quick disclaimer, all song clips are owned by their creators. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our feed wherever you get podcasts. And please give us some of those sweet, sweet stars by rating us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you feel like typing something. Next week, we will be talking about Sketchy Metal. What a good song title. I'm excited about that one. Listen to Get In Touch, DM us at Shortman Studios on Twitter or email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. This has been a Shortman Studios production. I'm Mike Taylor, and this is a positive jam. Positive jam.